All right. The chaos seems to have settled, so I'll get started. So this morning we're carrying on in our series called The Unveiled Christ that Malcolm and uh, Vikas and myself are going through this year, tagging in with Jono as he preaches through Acts. And so the text that I'm focusing on this morning is 2 Corinthians chapters 4, verses 1 through to 6, but I'm going to start the reading and refer to it through my message in three, chapter 3, verse 16. So, this is what God's word says to us. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have, de- we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. So, this morning, rather than working it through verse by verse, I want to approach this more thematically. And so we're going to be looking at the themes throughout this passage of light, image, and Lord. Light, image, and Lord. And then we're going to tie it back in together at the end. So first of all, we want to consider light. Verses 4 of chapter 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6 of chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see that Satan is trying to is blinding unbelievers, and we see that God shines light. And so... The God of this world, in verse 4, refers to is referring to Satan, and we can see his purpose very clearly, that he is blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That is Satan's role, and that is what he does. And so we think, well, what about, what about humanity in this? Does, does humanity have any hope? Does humanity have any responsibility within this, even though because Satan is, is, is blinding the unbelievers. And so, on that question, let's consider John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, which says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. John 3 shows us that people apart from Christ, love being blinded. 
They enjoy the darkness. They do not want to come to the light because they, they hate the light, lest their works be exposed. So is, is this unfair? Is this unfair that Satan is, is blinding and yet people are loving it? No, because Satan will be judged for his role in what he is doing and then humanity will be judged according to them who have loved being blinded. But even though Satan has his role in this, in, in blinding the minds of the unbelievers, that does nothing to stop the advance of the gospel. Because what is the condition into which God speaks? In verse 6, we see Paul says, let light shine out of darkness. You see, the, you see the speech marks around that that point us back to where these words were first used in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where God commanded light to come from darkness and light came from darkness. God commands light into darkness. Charles Hodge com- comments on this and he says, darkness originally brooded over chaos until God said, let there be light. And so spiritual darkness broods over the minds of men until God shines into their hearts. God shines into their hearts. And we see, we see the gospel, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, so we see it, but how do we see? How do we see this gospel? How do we see this glory? Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. How do we receive faith? How do we, how do we see? With eyes of faith that do not see something visible, but we hear and we see it. Not with our eyes, but internally we see through faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7 that Paul is, is, is coming to in this text that we're considering this morning says, For we walk by faith, and not by sight. And so the, the vision that a Christian lives with is not seeing something visible, but seeing with the eyes of faith, seeing with the light that God has used and shone internally. So we see that we see by faith, but who do we see? We see Christ, the end of verse 6. We see to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God concentrated in the face of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, we see that Moses shone with a particular glory, but he was only reflecting a glory that had come upon him because of his, pres- his because of him being in the presence of God. Here we see glory concentrated concentrated in and coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not Reflect glory, he shines glory. We do not follow a God who we see by sight, but rather we see the true God who we see by faith. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being in, in Nepal for a very quick trip, and um, and I remember we were in, in Kathmandu in, the, in, in this uh, suburb, I suppose you call it, called... Um, Tamal, and there's big temples and, and different things like that as you as you walk around this 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 suburb. And what you see, I remember seeing one person in particular standing before a concrete god who had its face covered in, in red dust all over its forehead. And this guy had red dust as well, and he was putting it on his forehead, and he was putting it 
on the forehead of the the image of this little of this god this this image of stone and 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 you see and like what sort of a, a god is that, that that somehow in humanity that that we've that there's been this idea that the, this red dust is significant for me and therefore it must be significant for this god who's really in control there it's it's it's, it's man himself covering this this image of stone in uh in japan flying back from bosnia a few years ago went to this we had a long stopover and so we went out into narita a little place in japan near the airport and you see this big there's these temples around and uh people would bring little portions of rice and they put it before these image stone images of these of these gods and and, and as though is this little offering to this God. Now we, we need rice to survive to live off. But it's like these but in this idolatry there is also this thing of these gods need sustenance that he would somehow be be happy with an offering of rice just to keep this God going for that that little bit longer. And that's what idolatry does at its heart is that it takes man that places man at the center of something and we and we worship something that is created and we think that we think that this is something wonderful we think that it's something awesome because there's a level of satisfaction that we get from it because it's in our image it's what we have controlled it to be and so we and yet in that thinking we make it wonderful we make it high we make it mighty but we've actually become enslaved by something that we've created. Christianity doesn't work like that. God, see, God steps into our time. He reveals himself. He is apart from us and he comes in and he shows us. And he is not needy upon us for anything. He does not need little offerings of rice or for us to affirm him with, with sprinklings of dust. He calls us to worship him even though he doesn't require that worship. And he doesn't show us himself in terms of something visible that you can you can go around in and see, oh, the, the Christian God is real because it's something we see today, physically. Rather, how we see Christ today is that a faith faith is shone in our hearts to give us the to give us the trust and the belief of the historicity, the the the, the, the truth of Christianity where Jesus has stepped in, but we no longer see him now. We will see him, and we have the faith to believe that what he has done is is going to lead us there. How do we know that we see? How do we know that we that we can understand and see the truths of the gospel? How do we know that the gospel is true? How do we know that Christ truly is wonderful? Jonathan Edwards says in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, he says this, he says, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. 
So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and the amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension. It is implied in a person's being hardly sensible of the loveliness of a thing, that the idea of it is pleasant to his soul, which is a far different thing from having a rational opinion that it is excellent. There is a difference between understanding that the glory of God emanates from Jesus Christ, understanding it intellectually and perceiving that this is actually the truth, that, that, that knowing that brings a sweetness about it, it grows in affection, it grows, that is the most wonderful thing of the world. That is what the eyes of faith does. The eyes of faith shows us and, and, and helps us to see. It, it enables us to see that this truly is wonderful. It gives us a supernatural knowledge that we did not have before God spoke into the darkness of our hearts and gave us that knowledge. There is a significant change in our affection towards Christ and who he is. That is what happens when God speaks into our hearts and reveals himself to us. One of the promises of the new covenant is that we will all know him. That every person within this new covenant people will have this knowledge that this truly is God. That we will all know him. This new covenant that God, that Jesus makes with us is described in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 12. And he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Here we see four promises in this new covenant. But one of them is, is that we will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. We will all have this faith. We will all have this, this faith that helps us to see who Jesus is, that shows us who Jesus is. We will no longer be obscured by a veil that hides us from seeing Christ. We will all see him clearly. That is what light does. It shines into the darkness of our hearts and it shows us who he is. Satan's blinding in, our, in the darkness of our own hearts is, 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 is undermined. It is overthrown. God speaks and says, this is the gospel. And we see that with faith. Do not see something physical but we see it with the eyes of faith. The second theme that I want to, to bring out in this text is image. In verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, we see, we see that, that Satan's role is to blind the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of of God. In, in 3.18 he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. So we see Christ as the image of God and we see that, that the role of the believer's life in sanctification as God makes us more and more like him is that he is transforming us to be into that same image. So when Jesus, when, when God shows us himself, he shows us Christ, the image of God. And what is the purpose of that seeing? Why does God show us Jesus? Why does God reveal Jesus to us? It isn't just so that we can see him one day, but it is so that we will be transformed, that we will be sanctified, we will grow in to see him. And we will be transformed into that same image in increasing levels of glory. So let's consider what the what it means that the image of God here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So how do we understand image? How do we understand what it means to be made in the image of God? That theologians call this the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. And theologian Richard Lintz says, bare notions of sociality will not sufficiently ground personhood in the biblical soil. It is not merely that humans are social creatures that constitute their purpose. It is a particular relationship to God that defines who they are. Now, the way that I've been taught growing up, how do we understand that humans are made in the image of God is sort of this this, this thing of, well, we can sort of create and make things and we interact with each other and, and we, and we socialise. And, and then you think about the Trinity and the way that there's three persons and they relate to each other and then out of that they, they create. And so somehow there are reflections of who God is in our nature and in our being. But just looking at that, looking at, the image of God only in that sense is is limiting. It limits what God, what what the make, being made in the image of God really means. Richard Lynn says it is a peculiar relationship to God that defines who they are. The biblical echoes of this are abundant. That Israel are created for a peculiar, a peculiar relationship to Yahweh. Jesus enters into history with a peculiar relationship to his Father. And the church that goes out into the world goes because of a peculiar relationship to their Trinitarian Redeemer. The story of redemption, whatever else it is, is a story of a peculiar relationship between God and humankind. One of the ways that we can define the image of God is that God speaks to us and we answer him. We're the only creatures on earth that, we're the only created creatures on earth that, that answer back to God in the way that we do. God speaks and we respond. There is a peculiar relationship here between God and man. We image him. We reflect him back. Michael Horton says, we could say that human beings are those who reflect God's image, not chiefly in what they are essentially, but in how they reply ethically. So it's not in, in what we are that's, that's necessarily reflecting God's image, but in how we reply. That's a stronger way to see this image of God. 
Though we are determined as human persons by the mere fact of our creation as God's image, our realization of the purpose of our personhood depends on whether they correspond to God's intentions. And so even though all humans are made in the image of God, the purpose of being made in the image of God really is found in whether we will respond back to God, whether we will, whether we will obey him, whether we will uh, respond to his intentions, that he, he reveals who he is in the word. Will we, will we respond? Will we answer him? Consider Adam in the garden. Adam, in the, Adam was called to obey God and to respond perfectly. And when they shared that perfect relationship, God spoke and Adam answered. There was no, there was no trouble there. But, but when the fall happened, it says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Heard the sound walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his, man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. So here, Adam and Eve, they've just broken God's law, and they hear his sound and they hide. They do not hear and respond, they hear and they hide. And then God calls out to them and says, where are you? It was the first time that that ever happened in the garden. God calls and there isn't an immediate response. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God speaks, and his image, his answerer, doesn't respond in the way that he was designed to. However, let's consider Jesus for a second. In John chapter 12, verses 48 to 49, he says, this is what Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What do we see there? We see a perfect speaker answer a relationship between the Father and the Son. That, that the Father was in heaven and Jesus on earth. The Father speaks in Jesus responds perfectly, just as the Father would have him. We see that Adam was called to this relationship where he would speak and God would answer. He broke that. But we see that Jesus, we see that Jesus responds perfectly every time to, Christ, to the Father. Christ is the image of God, the one who answers perfectly. What is the goal of sanctification? What is, what is the purpose of it according to three 18, is that as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we behold Jesus Christ, he transforms us, he changes us, he sanctifies us, and he, and, he, and he leads us to greater and greater levels of obedience, where God speaks and we respond in obedience in greater and greater measures throughout our life. We do not do this perfectly in this life. We do not do this perfectly this side of eternity, but we know our hope, our joy, our thought of the future is that is that when 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 we are when the new heavens and the new creation come and God brings us into 
the finality of his kingdom and, he, and we are glorified and resurrected and we are perfect, one day God will speak to us and we will perfectly respond. We will not hold back. We will not have selfish thoughts. We will not, we will not mar this image. We will not live in this broken image anymore of, of wrestling between our inner man that wants to respond to God perfectly but then struggling as well to do that perfectly. And yet one day we will be that perfect image again, made after the image of Christ, reflecting him. Third, um, the third theme that I want to, to bring out is his point of reward. Verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul's proclamation of the gospel is centrally that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the central claim of, of the gospel that he preached. Jesus is Lord. And so we'll look at his lordship in two senses, and it won't, won't take long. But first of all, we'll look at covenant, mediator, and then secondly, Paul's motivation. So, in chapters 3, verses 16 to 18, we see that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In verse 11, we see that this, this covenant that Paul has just talked about in chapters 3 that, that was made between, between God and the Israelites through Moses, that this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, was temporary. It was, it, was gonna, it was making way for a greater covenant. It pointed forward to Christ. It pointed forward to a new covenant, a better covenant. It was based on laws that if they followed these laws, they would inherit the land, they would keep it, but they failed to keep those commands. In God's providence, it failed because the Mosaic Covenant, this covenant between God and the people of Israel was not meant to last. It was meant to point towards this new covenant. Moses, when this Mosaic Covenant was written, Moses saw God with his finger right on these tablets of stone. And then Moses takes those, 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 those tablets of stone, these Ten Commandments, down to the people and they can look at the law and they can see it, but it's written on stone. It's not written on their heart. In the new covenant, Christ writes the law not on tablets of stone, but he writes it on our hearts. It's one of the promises of this new covenant that he will take the law and he writes it upon our hearts. That we do not look out externally and we follow it, but we follow it because it is written internally. But, but with, what does, with what is this new covenant written? The old, the old covenant written with the finger of God and tablets of stone. New covenant written with Jesus' very own blood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul, uh, Paul refers back to Luke 22 in the, in the upper room where Jesus is about to ha- has, has supper with the disciples before he goes to the cross and he institutes the Lord's table. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after saying, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not old covenant in stone, but the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Question, why is the Lord's Supper so significant? Firstly, we are submitting to his lordship. We are showing that Jesus Christ himself is Lord as a community, that Jesus gave a command that we should do this. He commanded us to take it. And so when we, as as a covenant community, as, as a church, take this, we are, we are honoring Jesus as Lord. We are following one of his commands. But then secondarily, it also ties us directly to the cross. It's a visible representation of what Jesus did on the cross where he wrote this new covenant in blood and now we have this covenant written upon our hearts. It ties us to the cross. But then secondarily, it also, but then also it points us to the future. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take this, we are saying that we are the Lord's people, because of what he did on the cross. But we also have this great hope of our Lord coming again, and we live in this, in this space between these two great events, looking back, but also looking forward and anticipating. Perhaps this is the most important thing that we can do as a church that shows his lordship. It's a visible sign of his lordship over us. At the cross, Christ himself mediates this new covenant to us. In the old covenant, God used Moses to mediate this covenant to the people. In the new covenant, God himself, in his own blood, gives us this new covenant. We do not earn this new covenant that is built on on great promises through particular levels of righteousness or achieving particular levels of piety before we are brought into it. these, These promises... That is the foundation upon which our lives are built. These are not something to attain to. It is something upon which the Christian life is grounded. How can we behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into his image? Because the blessings of this new covenant is written on our hearts, and that is the starting point for the Christian life that enables us to behold him. Secondly, Christ's lordship shows is shown in Paul's motivation. That Paul knew that Jesus was the Lord. And this comes through in his motivation for why he did what he did. The reason that Paul is writing this is because his own ministry to the church at Corinth is being undermined by these false apostles. They are speaking false things to him. Well, they're speaking false things about him to the church at Corinth. And so he's defending his ministry to them. And he's also showing them what the substance of his ministry is. That is the ministry of this new covenant. And so, and so Paul is facing much opposition. But yet we see the, 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 the rawness of his motivation to carry on this charge, even though he is being opposed. He says, therefore, in verse 1, 
Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why did Paul conduct himself in the way that he did? Why did he go around ministry in the way that he did? Because he saw Jesus Christ as Lord, who was his supreme joy. Joy for Paul wasn't found in making advances that pleased the world, or by winning the praise of man, or seducing them through particular cunning methods. Rather, he submitted himself to Christ's lordship and proclaimed him unashamedly. And why did Paul not lose heart? Because he knew who was in control despite the opposition. Paul knew that in himself he had no power to advance the gospel. But he only needed to proclaim it and that God would speak into the darkness. That God would grant faith and regeneration to those whom he called. And that the sweetness of Christ, as God revealed him to be sweet, would be that which people would behold until he comes. And that we would behold this message and we would be transformed perfectly into Christ's image. That's why Paul did what he did. He did not need to do what the false apostles did in trying to convince people of some weird teaching or to distort the truth, but rather he only needed to present it as it was true. Knowing that Jesus Christ was Lord, knowing that Jesus Christ is is the one who reveals himself and, and uses the gospel which points to himself to change people. And the, and the gospel faith guarantees that hope that one day we will be like him. And as we behold, as we live our lives beholding the truths of the gospel, believing it and, and repenting of, in those areas where we do not believe it, God himself transforms us to be like Christ in greater and greater levels of obedience. And so, may we share that same boldness that Paul had. May we share that same submission to Christ that Paul had. And may we, may we learn to, to grow and understand and have clarity of the beauty of gospel. Whereabouts is the glory of the gospel concentrated? It is concentrated in the face of Jesus Christ. And we cannot see it apart from the grace of God revealing it to us. 